Hello, and welcome to another episode of Stories from the World. This is David Robert Farmerie. Before I get into this week's episode, I wanted to mention that, again, at the end of this episode is a piece of music. The artist is Tammy Nielsen, and the song is Good Night. A link to her music on iTunes will be available in the show notes. This week's episode, My Time with the Veterans of the B-17 Bombers of World War II. Last night, my dear friend Carly came over to look at the large black-and-white portrait that I had printed of Helen Greyeyes. After looking at the portrait, Carly began looking at all the personal photographs that I have hanging on my office walls. At one point, her eyes settled on a selfie that I had made of myself while flying in the nose of a B-17 bomber several years ago. In total, during this project, which took several months, I had acquired or accumulated a roughly, I think it was about 110 or 120 hours flying in a B-17 bomber, primarily in the nose and in the tail. Anyhow, after I had given her the background behind the photograph, the selfie that I had made of me in the nose of the B-17, I had remembered a story, one of the stories, one of the many stories from my time with the various World War II veterans who flew repeated missions over Germany in these B-17s. And this one story I want to share with you now. While working on this extended photo story of those who flew in the B-17s during World War II, I had the honor, and I mean that so very sincerely, the honor, the privilege of spending time with many of the people who flew these missions. And the stories were as plentiful as the people that I interviewed. All of the stories had similarities, but each one was uniquely different as well. And the one that I am about to share with you truly, sincerely, could be a movie in and of itself. And I also feel it's important to say this, that every person that I talked with, every person that I interviewed, and every person that told me a story or several stories of their experience during World War II, they told the story without any bravado whatsoever. Each and every story was told simply as a matter of fact, that this is what happened. It wasn't any big deal, but this is what happened. Even now, as I think back on this and think back to talking with these people, I am still astounded at their modesty. And again, it wasn't a false modesty. It was just as one, as actually as several told me at different times, this is what we did. There was a war. This is what we did. And the gentleman who told the story that I am about to tell you was no different. He told this story very matter-of-factly. Each and every aspect of this story, as you're going to hear, he told just matter-of-factly. In fact, any enthusiasm that you hear as I tell this story is truly and solely on my part. It wasn't anything that came from him. This particular story is of a man who was a pilot of a B-17. It was his very first mission. As he was about to crawl into the belly of the plane, he had his parachute strapped on tight, 
But just before he crawled in, another pilot, who had just returned from a mission, was passing by. He saw this and stopped him. You won't be able to fit between the back of your seat and the steering wheel with your parachute attached, he told him. What you want to do is take a piece of wire, and with that he showed him his own piece of wire. You want to take a piece of wire like this, fashion it into an S-hook, and then attach one end of the hook to the back of your seat, and the other end to your parachute. This new pilot, the one who was telling me this story, heeded those words. He removed the parachute from his back, climbed into the belly of the plane, made his way up into the cockpit. There he found a piece of this wire, fashioned it into an S-hook, and attached his parachute to the back of his chair as instructed. The mission en route to the target went well. They reached their destination, dropped their payload of bombs, then turned for home. Not long after the return trip began, they ran into a barrage of flak that exploded all around them. He said that he remembered seeing one of the engines get hit, then he remembered some sort of fluid running along the floor of the cockpit. The next thing he remembered, he said, was regaining consciousness while falling through the air with no plane around him. He said that all he could see beneath him was a thick bank of clouds. He was still attached to his chair and then saw that his parachute, attached by the S-shaped piece of wire, was trailing above him. He said that he managed to grab one of the straps, pull it to him, and get one of the straps secured over one of his shoulders. At that point, he had broken through the cloud bank, and there was the ground not far below. So immediately, he pulled the ripcord, deployed his parachute, but when the canopy opened, he said it jerked him really hard. And since the parachute was secured only to one shoulder, it twisted and twerked his body severely. When he hit the ground, he was still traveling much too fast, and the impact damaged his back and his legs. He said as he laid there, he didn't know what country he was in. Then he saw a woman coming towards him from a small farmhouse off in the distance. This was always something to be feared, even more than landing within sight of the Nazi army, because many of the civilians when they came across downed American or allied crew members, flight crew members, they would maim and kill them, generally with clubs and or pitchforks. He said that as she grew closer, he could hear her yelling something but didn't understand the language. Then he saw two men slightly behind the woman's position dismount their bicycles, then also begin to make their way towards him. As the men who had dismounted their bicycles got within talking distance, they told him in very broken English that they were with the Dutch resistance and that a group of Nazi soldiers were not far behind him. They helped him to his feet and across the field to the road where they had left their bicycles. They asked if he could ride a bicycle and he replied that he was unsure because of his back and his legs. So they acquired a third bicycle from the woman, put him on it, then straddled him on either side and pulled him along. Eventually, they arrived at a small farm shelter. Inside were many others of the Dutch resistance. They tended to his injuries as best they could and kept him there until he was healed, healed well enough to get around on his own, which took many days. He also told me, as kind of a side note, that the main staple of their diet 
was tulip bulbs, as food was very, very scarce. He said at one point during his recuperation, the resistance fighters found a farmer who was a Nazi sympathizer, which had caused the demise of many from the resistance. So one night they made their way to the farmer's house, killed him, and then slaughtered some of his livestock for food. Now here is where the story really starts to get amazing. After he had healed well enough to get around on his own, he was still unable to get out of Holland and get back to the United States or even back to England. So he decided to fight with the Dutch resistance. He said that at one point they came to him and said that one of the resistance fighters had been injured and captured by the Nazis. And now this resistance fighter was being held prisoner in a nearby Nazi-controlled hospital to recuperate before being sent to one of the prison camps. Their mission was to sneak into the hospital and liberate this guy. They had, at some point over however long, acquired Nazi officer uniforms. So each of them donned a uniform of a Nazi officer, including the man that's telling me this story. When they arrived at the hospital, they entered and walked through the hospital unchecked because everyone assumed that they were, you guessed it, Nazi officers. And as they got to the end of a hallway where they were about to go and find the man being held prisoner, they told this guy, the one telling me the story, to stand where he was. And if anybody comes in and seems to recognize him as not being a Nazi officer, to just do whatever he needs to do. And with that, they handed him a machine gun, then went off to find their friend. All seemed to go well for a while, he said. And then, all of a the sudden, these two SS officers come walking towards him, and they look at him, and they talk to each other, and they look at him again. And he has this gut feeling that, yeah, they know he is not a Nazi officer. So with that, he just opens up with a machine gun, just spraying and shooting everything in sight. Needless to say, as he continued, all hell broke loose. So, as he had been previously instructed, if this happens, just get out of there and somehow find your way back to the resistance base from where they came. He said that eventually he made his way to a large wooded area. And by this time it was nightfall and he said it was freezing cold. And the only thing he had to keep warm was this Nazi officer's coat. And he said he finally just laid down to get some sleep. And as he did, he noticed this dog. It was basically a stray dog, I guess, that was coming through and it was freezing. So he just looked at the dog and he lifted his coat open. He said the dog came over and just laid down right against him. He pulled the coat over both of them and they spent the night together keeping each other warm until morning. And in the morning when he woke, the dog woke, he opened the coat, the dog walked off, he got up and he walked off in his direction. Eventually, he did make his way back to the resistance base, as did the others, including the imprisoned comrade. After relaying several other episodes of this journey of his, he was finally able to find passage to Amsterdam. And this journey to Amsterdam was no less challenging than any he had encountered up until now. Traveling over land was far too dangerous, so they made their way via a river. 
The problem with this route is that the Nazis were aware of it being used as a transport route, so they guarded it heavily. The decision was made to travel the river under darkness of night. They climbed into these very shallow boats, and as they made their way down the river and they came upon each of the checkpoints where the Nazis were embedded, including being equipped with searchlights, the occupants of the boat would lay flat and remain completely still and completely silent as the current drifted them past the checkpoints. Eventually, he did arrive in Amsterdam, where he was set up in an apartment, a second-floor apartment in the heart of the city. While in Amsterdam, alone in this apartment, one day he happened to be looking out of the window, gazing down upon the street that passed in front of the building. He said that the first person to exit the car was a woman who was dressed very, very well, and she exited from the passenger side of the car. Then, he continued, from the driver's side of the car exited this tall gentleman in what appeared to be a Nazi uniform. I was really nervous at this point, he said, because it looked as if they were going to enter the apartment building that I was staying in. And sure enough, shortly after he lost sight of them, there was a knock at his door. Now, he said, his nervousness was raging. I didn't know what to do, he said. I paced the room for a few minutes, then decided to open the door. Immediately in front of the door was the woman, and just behind her was the gentleman. Not only was he a Nazi, but he was also wearing an SS uniform. I thought for sure I was about to be captured, he said. It turned out that both the woman and the SS officer were working with the Dutch resistance, and they had come to deliver good news. They had found a way to get him out of Holland and back to England, then eventually back to the United States. Once in England, he had waited many, many days to try to get a flight from there back to the United States. It seems that all flights going back were full already. Then, he said, one day there was a flight, and again, like all of the others, it was full. But one of the passengers that was booked on this flight was a general. And it turned out that this general had heard about all that this man had done after his plane was shot down. So the general relinquished his seat so that this man could fly back home. Many years later, long after the war was over, this man returned to Holland and he took his wife. First, he visited Amsterdam. And it was only then, he said, that the apartment in which he was housed in, in Amsterdam, was only a couple of blocks away from where Anne Frank had lived. He also returned to the town where his plane had crashed and where he had lodged and fought with the Dutch resistance. He said that after the war, the local residents had gathered up as many pieces of his crashed plane as they could find, and they erected a small monument to him as well as to his crew members that didn't survive. And each year, they had a commemorative service in honor of them. This was certainly one of the more extensive stories that I had heard during all of my interviews with these crew members of the B-17 bombers. But I must tell you that in all of the stories that I heard, 
Not one was any less heroic or any less amazing than this one. As a bit of a side note, during World War II in these missions, these bombing missions over Europe, on every single mission, the average was one in 10 planes never returned. And when you realize that there were hundreds and hundreds of planes that went on each of these missions, that is a lot of planes that never came back. And each plane carried a crew of, I think it was about 10 or 12 people. And that is a lot of people that never made it back. Now, granted, not all were killed. Some were captured. But still, and I think the thing that amazed me the most about these people that flew on the missions is, okay, I could understand the first mission that you flew on. You would go, you would get on the plane, it would be, you would be apprehensive, but that was the extent of it. Then you would fly to the bombing site. And en route, you, you literally went through hell. Imagine that 30 minutes, sometimes an hour, or even more before they got to the target where they were dropping their bombs is they were flying through flak that was exploding all around them. And when it exploded, pieces of the shell would come ripping through the fuselage of the plane. And not only that, but then you had the fighter planes, the Nazi fighter planes that were constantly coming in and shooting and trying to take you down. And then if you were fortunate enough to at least make it to the target and drop your bombs, you now had to turn around and make your way back. And the way back was exactly the same as the way that you came, which means you now had to pass back through where all of the flak guns were firing flak into the air. And believe me, they were still there waiting for you to return. And the fighter planes, they were still there as well. Now you had to make your way through all of that a second time. And if you were fortunate enough to make it back to the base, you got off the plane, they handed you a half a sandwich and a shot of whiskey. And then you had to turn around sometimes in four hours, sometimes in eight hours, sometimes in 12 hours, and you had to do it all over again. And this is the part that truly astounds me, is how they were able to time and time and time and time again to go on these bombing runs, come back, and again, if they made it, to be able to turn around and walk back onto a plane and go for it again, knowing what they were in for. In the early days of the war, you had to fly 25 missions and then you were rotated out, but then that changed to 30 and then 35 and 40. And I think towards the end of the war, it was actually 45 missions you had to fly before you were rotated out. I don't know how they did the second mission, let alone 40, 45, even 20. How did they do that? And of course, I asked this question to each and every person that I interviewed and each and every person's response was essentially the same. It was the war. We were there to fight it. That's what we did. One other response that I heard just one time was from a pilot. And I said to him, I don't get it. I said, you know, I know what it's like to fight on the ground. And at least there, theoretically, you feel like you at least have a blade of grass you can hide behind. But I said, you were in the air. You were exposed. There was nothing around you for safety, nothing around to hide behind. And he looked at me. And truly, and I'm not exaggerating here, he had this glint in his eye. In fact, everybody I interviewed 
had that glint in their eyes still. And he said to me, yes, but we were flying. Heroes, one and all, I want to sincerely thank you, as always, for allowing me to share with you another story from the world. And now, good night from Tammy Nielsen. If you'd like to keep abreast of upcoming workshops, lectures, or new releases of my fine art prints, sign up for my mailing list at davidfarmerie.com. You have my sincere word that you will not be spammed, nor will I give or share your information with anyone. You have been listening to Stories from the World, copyright 2021, David Robert Farmerie, all rights reserved.